välkomna till internationell författarscen. Jag heter Ida Linde. Och jag heter Athena Färrochsad. Och vi ansvarar för litteraturen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Alldeles strax ska ni få höra den etiopisk-amerikanska författaren Maza Mengiste i samtal med Judith Kiros. Varmt välkomna. Vojigra, även kallad Fusiligra, ursprung Frankrike. Ett 11 mm repetergevär konstruerat för att avfyra en dödlig projektil i taget med jämn precision. Ett tåligt vapen som klarar av kyla och regn och upprepad snabb eldgivning. Titta hur jag gör hirut. Sitt stilla och var uppmärksam. Hennes far laddar patronen genom att öppna patronläget. Det gör han genom att föra tillbaka ett litet handtag som sitter på ena sidan vid bakre delen av pipan. Hirut betraktar handtaget. Det är blankt och slätt. En silverknopp lika rund som fullmånen. Ser du här? Han lyfter högerhanden. Det här är den hand alla bra soldater använder när de hanterar det här geväret. Hirut formar vänsterhanden till en knytnäve. Det är den hand hon är mest bekväm med att använda. Det är den hand hennes mor har börjat binda. Hon tittar och ser att han har rätt. Handtaget på Vujigran sitter inte bra för vänsterhänta krigare. Så när hon blir soldat, tänker hon den här dagen tillsammans med sin far, måste hon skjuta med högerhanden, den som spjärnar emot så fort hon försöker få den att göra något. Vänsterhanden, säger mamma, är den hand djävulen använder. Det är den hand en tjuv använder och du är ingen lejba. Det är den hand man använder för sånt som ingen ska se en göra, hyrut. Man äter inte med den. Man gör ingenting med den handen förutom de allra hemligaste sakerna. Hirut är för ung för hemligheter. Hon är för ung för att förstå att det finns sådan som bör hållas utom räckhåll för kunskapen. Hennes far lyfter geväret och trycker änden mot muskeln mellan axeln och bröstkorgen. Man stöder det här, säger han. Exakt där ditt huvud lägger sig på mig när du somnar. Han ler. Han drar bak handtaget med högerhanden. Så här öppnar man slutstycket, fortsätter han. Inuti ser hon en rundad fåra som är fläckig av ålder. Här hamnar patronen. Hennes far håller patronen mellan två fingrar. När man öppnat pipan, säger han, stoppar man i patronen så här i patronläget. Han drar i handtaget och låser slutstycket. Så lyfter han geväret och rösten förändras. Den blir mörk och darrar en aning när han berättar. Du spanar tills du kan se fienden i det här siktet. Han slår lätt med fingret på en liten metallist längre ut på pipan. Han flyttar fingret till nedre delen av geväret. Där det finns en plats för det att vila. Det här är avtryckaren hirut. Han låter inte som han brukar göra. Han låter inte som hennes pappa. När han tittar på henne är det som att han inte tittar på henne. Ansiktet sjunker ihop kring ögonen och hon ser att han försöker dölja dig genom att kisa. Den här, säger han, rör du inte om du inte är beredd. 
Beredd på vad? Frågar hon. Han stoppar tillbaka patronen i fickan. Beredd på att bli någon du inte är. Hej och välkomna till internationell författarscen. Jag heter Athena Faroxad och har ansvar för litteraturen här på Kulturhuset tillsammans med Ida Linde. Det ni just hörde det var ett utdrag ur Maza Mengistes fantastiska roman Skuggkungen i översättning av Örjan Sjögren. Maza är född i Addis Abeba och uppvuxen i Lagos och Nairobi och sedan lång tid bosatt i New York där hon undervisar i litterär gestaltning. Hon debuterade 2010 med romanen Under lejonets blick och 2020 kom den här romanen Skuggkungen som nu alltså finns utgiven på bokförlaget Trönan. Och nu så ska ni få höra Maza Mengiste i samtal med poeten och forskaren Judith Kiros. Och samtalet kommer att pågå ungefär i en timme och efteråt finns det möjlighet att köpa böcker. Varmt välkomna Judith Kiros och Maza Mengiste. Welcome. Hello, Maaza. Hello. And welcome to Stockholm. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Thank you all for coming. It's really cold today. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> It doesn't get any better, believe me. Um, but we're here to talk about The Shadow King, uh, your novel that was recently translated into Swedish. Um, full disclosure, we have actually already spoken about this novel yesterday in Malmö, <laughs> but fortunately for us and for you, this is such an incredibly rich, dense and layered novel that yesterday we only got through three questions maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and afterwards I was so keen to just continue. Um, and rather than sort of pick up exactly where we left off, mm -hmm. I'm thinking quickly just sort of quickly introducing the book. Mm -hmm. How would you sort of, mm. how would you do that? Because it's, it's very difficult. Yes, <laughs> it, is. it is. And that's um, why you have to do it and not me. Yes. Uh, uh, well, this is what I tell people who say, oh, what is your book about? Uh, and I will say that the book is set Uh, in 1935, during Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia. And it tells the story of that war from both the Ethiopian perspective and the Italian perspective. And it tells the story of women who fought in the front lines with men. That's the short version. Uh, But then if people say, uh, what, no, really, what is your book really about? Uh, then I would say, uh, my book is about memory. My book is about the things that we try to forget and cannot. Uh, my book is about how history uh, is itself a memory 
created by a nation or groups of people um, that can be fought against and can be contested. But uh, ultimately, I think uh, the main character here, you could say it's Hirut, who is a young girl who becomes a soldier, or uh, it's about memory for me. I think that's the main mm. character in this book. Yeah. I was thinking about that, memory being the main character, and how that means that memory needs to be approached through every character, mm -hmm. reflected through every character, because that's the central conflict, mm -hmm. essentially. Yes. Um, yesterday, I won't be referencing this other talk too much, don't <laughs> worry, but we stumbled upon a quote that means a lot to the both of us. Yes. Do you want to... Talk yes. a bit about it. Uh, I have been reading Walter Benjamin again uh, recently, uh, th thinking about um, his theories on history, uh, on the role of the writer in, in particular violent times or times of uh, authoritarianism and fascism. And he makes a comment, uh, writing this as Nazis are coming in, um, he says, if the enemy wins, not even the dead will be safe. Uh, and I've been thinking a lot about what that means, uh, about the role of language to, to preserve the memories and the pasts, plural, that we have. Uh, the role that literature or writing has uh, to create through, through art a kind of resurrection of the dead, uh, and also to make those people from the past, whether they are our relatives, our ancestors, um, make those people who were not supposed to be remembered by history because they were unimportant, they were not useful for society to make them remembered. Uh, so I've been, yeah, it's something that I have been thinking about extensively in the last uh, several weeks, a, a few months, and uh, we found that connection yesterday. Yes, and uh, Benjamin is talking about the historical materialist, essentially sort of arguing that history is the result of struggle mm -hmm. between the classes and sort of the person in power is the one who determines what is remembered and how. And he's talking about that in relation to historians. But what are the implications for the writer? Mm. Well, I think one of the things that I realized in, in researching uh, The Shadow King, trying to find... Um, trying to learn about the daily lives of, of people who were affected by this war, what quickly became apparent is uh, obviously there was propaganda on the fascist side. Obviously, the materials that I was looking at uh, when I lived in Rome were those materials that had been saved through the 30s and 40s were a kind of curated history. Mussolini wanted history to be remembered in a certain way. So the censors were very busy working from the very beginning of this invasion and even before to construct a collective memory for after this was done. Um, but what I also realized is that thinking of all the oral stories that I was 
getting um, from friends, from relatives about this war in Ethiopia. Um, there was also a kind of propaganda that was happening. The stories that I was hearing were stories of defiance and courage and bravery. And of course, those things existed. But when I, had, when I started asking people, okay, but outside of the battles, what is war like? What happens on a day when there is no battle to go to? What did people do? And that's just where there was a silence. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the real story of war really exists in those moments, in those quiet moments, either quiet moments of terror or fear or exhilaration or complete boredom. Mm. Because if there's nowhere to go, what do you do? Uh, and I think that um, I started trying to find that history, the history within this, this other thing. Um, because I think that's, that's what... That's what war really is. It's those small pockets that we don't think about. And maybe a way of trying to listen very intensely to the silences. What isn't being said. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's not being said is because that's where the other story is. Absolutely, absolutely. Because um, I would ask the women in my grandmother's generation, what it was like when the Italians were there. And I would often get a shrug um, and, uh, oh, you know, we, we got through it, or we helped the men, we collected the wounded, we, we treated them, we, we, we sewed scarves, we did this thing. And I said, but what was it like? Um, and there was not a lot of conversation about that. And that, that is a silence that I realized there's evidence of what else um, was happening because uh, in my own family there were people who were half Italian and yet no one would ever talk about that. So there was evidence of something in the human body. It was there, uh, but I never got those stories and that's a clue that I was getting as a writer that there was more to investigate. Mm. And that those silences are not silences at all. Right. And frequently gendered. Because in this book, of course, the women speak. Yes. Those bits of um, history that are only story, mm. passed around in families. Yes. And why was it important to you to, because it is primarily about women, mm -hmm. But there's also two very prominent male characters, Kidane and Colonel Ficelli. Mm -hmm. Why was it important for you, Ettore as well, of course, but I'm thinking about these two in particular. Mm -hmm. Why was it important to you to write about these men? Mm. And they were the hardest. They were the two of the hardest characters in this book. They're both cruel in their own ways. Uh, they're both cruel in the way that men in power tend to be cruel. They're, they're both arrogant in that same way. Um, and I had, it was important for me to, to render them because I know that people like that existed, both on the Italian side and also on the Ethiopian side. And it had nothing to do with nationality. It has everything to do with power. And I wanted to look at power through these two people through these two characters. Um, 
In Kidane's case, he's a nobleman. He's been raised by men to be a certain kind of man. Uh, and in some ways, there's a, there's a moment when it, he's at his wedding night, his wedding night with Aster, where he's much older than her and she's just a girl. And they're in this bedroom and she's terrified. And he knows she's terrified. Um, and I started thinking, well, what is he feeling then? He knows that everyone is downstairs listening, waiting to see uh, if later there will be blood on the sheet. He's been told by his father and the men in his family that to be a warrior, you have to get used to the sight of blood. And so you practice on this girl. Um, and he's scared too. Um, he doesn't know what to do with the obligations that his rank and his status have placed on him. Uh, and I wanted to look at that kind of the power, but the, the pressure that's also beneath that, but also the way that that breeds cruelties in different ways. Um, I think it's too easy for, for me as a writer to render cruelty as just flat, without history, without cause, without fear, without insecurity. And so I was working to complicate Kidana in that way. Uh, Fuccelli, oh, he was hard. <laughs> he was hard um, to try to get into the skin of an Italian. Uh, an Italian who is racist, misogynistic, a fascist. Um, I tried to imagine the two of us sitting in a room together, both of us in a chair across from each other. And I would um, often wait and try to figure out what he would say to me and uh, what I would say to him. Uh, and what I found from, from trying to imagine those moments is that um, this was a man that, that had to prove something, prove something to people that were no longer alive. Uh, maybe it was his father, maybe it was somebody else, but that, that desire is what kept him going. Uh, and in a sense, he he was an enemy to himself as much as he was an enemy to Ethiopians. Um, and yet he had these moments of tenderness that we talked about yesterday with his uh, Ethiopian madam, a madama, uh, Fifi, where he doesn't, he doesn't know if what he feels for her is love. He doesn't know if it's a tenderness. She doesn't know, or she may know what she feels for him, but there's a very complicated thing happening in that relationship uh, that is about power also. And um, he, was, he was really difficult to, to try to get into. But again, uh, what I wanted to think about with him was, and that was important to me, is how do I, how do I begin to understand um, racism? How do I interpret it through this character? What is it? What is racism? Is it just the words that someone says? Or is it a feeling and is it just hatred? It's not just hatred, there's something else in it. 
And that was what I was trying to find. Um, so those two characters gave me, gave me a lot of trouble, but, but mm. we worked it out in the end. I think from when you're talking now as well, we're talking about history as a sort of power struggle. Mm -hmm. And the thing that gives Kidane power, thing that gives Vicelli power is history, mm -hmm. right? Kidane is referencing his bloodline. Yeah. He's going back in time saying, I am this and this person is my ancestor and therefore uh, I am in this position. Um, and I also have to live up yes. to this. Uh, and at the same time, Fucelli keeps referencing the Roman Empire. I'm trying to build Rome here now again. But while it gives them power, it also becomes a burden. It also weakens them. Yeah. Those are the fault lines in both characters, looking back and feeling the burden of history and living up to something that maybe was never there. Mm -hmm. They, they, and these, this is the thing that um, they are nothing without that history and they both know it, but it, it is, they have created a perception that they are much more than that. Uh, but both of them recognize that without that, what would they be? And I think that this is Kidana's greatest fear is to leave this war without some kind of legacy that helps to, he has this history of, of men in his family who have been great and done great things. But what is he if he doesn't have a legacy as a result of this war? Um, and again, like you were saying, it, it's, they rely on this history, but it's flimsy because what is history? But a, a series of narratives that have been created by people who have their own biases, who make mistakes, who have bad memories, who have political agendas. That's what history is. It just happened, it just depends on who gets to write the textbooks. Um, and so you have this history that is one thing that is in a book, and then you have these individual histories. And those things will often collide because the individual histories are much more complicated. And I think that they show the more, um, contradictory natures of memory and, and events uh, and human, human reactions than this other state-imposed narrative that we take as truth. Mm. Yeah, I think about um, when you're talking about these characters and the problem of legacy, which is also the problem of history, right? Um, something that almost every character in this book grapples with is the idea of being forgotten, mm. being remembered. And so you have scenes where charging into battle, people will yell their own names or the names of their fathers um, or the names of the fallen. And this is something that happens several times over. Uh, in one, I won't spoil it, but in one very important scene, um, Hirut, the main character, in a sense, um, starts listing the names mm. as a way of also moving past or through yeah. something. And it functions as a kind of spell, mm. this litany of the fallen. Yeah. But what sort of spell is it, that name? Remembering the names. 
I think names have always fascinated me. Uh, and it was something that was important to me also in the first book, Beneath the Lion's Gaze. I have a character in that book whose father was dying and um, he said, speak your name back to yourself, make yourself live. Um, and with this book, there is a power, I think, in, in being able to name, to name yourself, to say your name out loud, to say that you exist, that you are, in this moment you are. Um, there's a power in that, but the power comes from knowing that your name is connected to all these other people that came before you, that there is a power that cannot be taken away. Um, it's in blood, it's in bone, and that's your name. Uh, and I feel often that this is usually um, one of the first things that, that authoritarian regimes try to get rid of, is that sense of who you are in a particular moment, where you are, how you can speak your name and exist and be recognized. Uh, this thing of being recognized by other people because you are you uh, is one of those things that disappears in fascism. And uh, it's a, to, for me, each of these characters will say their names or say someone else's names as a way to hold on to something that doesn't, that can't be taken away because it has already existed. Um, but then it makes me think about uh, the cook who recognizes the power of a name. Mm. And I don't know if you want to talk about that. I absolutely do. There is a character, <laughs> there's a character in this novel called the cook, and that is all we know of her name. Yeah. She refuses to give anyone her full name, real name. Yeah. She's only there as a function. She is an enslaved person. Uh, she has been stolen from her family to work in Aster's home. And then when Aster marries Kidane, she follows Aster. And all she wants is to leave. But she's powerless to leave. Um, everything has been taken from her. Uh, and the one thing she has that is hers is her name. Uh, but what she has decided is that no one will know it, so that no one will have it. Uh, and so she has decided that she will be called only by what she's good for, which is cooking. And so she's called the cook. Uh, I'm curious to see how it translates in the Swedish. I have, my translator is here, so we'll talk about that at dinner. <laughs> but um, she's called the cook in, in English, and um, she will not give her name because she understands the power of that. Mm. So having power over your own name, that's the question. Yes. Not, not saying it, not keeping it, but being able to withdraw or put it forward. To have the choice, mm. yes. Yeah. Because she is a, f a fascinating character, I think. There is, there is one character here, the Shadow King. Oh, yeah. Haile Selassie leaves Ethiopia um, during the Italian invasion. And fortunately, there is a character um, who looks exactly like him. <laughs> and so 
Kidane and his people decide to dress this man as Haile Selassie, put him on a horse and send him out so that people will be inspired to fight because it's the power of the story. Yes. And this character is called Minim, which means nothing. And even though he is nothing, he still has his name. Yeah. But the cook does not. Yes. Is it something to do with the status as well of the enslaved? Mm. I think, yeah, I think it has, it has the cook, the cook just w is not, even now, I think I might know her name. <laughs> uh, Don't tell us. I will not. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, she she insisted in a sense that every time I tried to put a name down, that scene completely collapsed. Mm. So I'd have to take it out, and I said, "Okay, now it works." Um, and so I think that it, this was this is a character who is known only by what her body is capable. Of, of contributing to this community that she does not want to be a part of. Uh, Minim was for me uh, a really interesting character. He is a farmer, really a musician at heart, a very gentle man. He's, um, he's quite small, small-boned, the way that the emperor was. Um, he doesn't want this. He has no desire to be put in a uniform, uh, to be put on, uh, you know, on on a on a donkey or on a horse and made to go out in front of people. He's frightened, uh, and he's not afraid to to show that fear. Um, his name, though, was important to me, and to keep that name was important because, again, I'm looking at the nature of power. That if a man who is a peasant who is named nothing can lead a nation, then what makes an emperor? What makes a leader? Uh, he, his name came to me um, almost immediately. And I don't think there's anyone in Ethiopia by the name of Minim. I don't think anyone would name their child nothing, maybe. Uh, <laughs> maybe but, uh, a not yeah. particularly well-loved child. Right, right. Yeah, and um, but his name stuck, and it made sense. Uh, and part of it grew from understanding that a lot of world leaders have had doppelgangers. They've used body doubles. Um, and so in, in, in a sense, it fit the logic of war and a war story. But he was very important to me to try to think about um, the, the, this nature, this thing of what makes a ruler. Uh, is it all myth, and is it just really a people's belief in something that doesn't quite exist? I'm interested in myth, now that you brought it mm. up. Um, there's history, there's story, there's myth. All these things happen in this book. Uh, arguably, they're different registers, different ways of telling a tale. How did you work with these registers? Oh. <laughs> it, very slowly, it took 10 years to write this book. Um, one of the things that 
in terms of this this register, there are there is the chorus that goes through this book. Um, the chorus comes into certain moments and will say, for example, Aster doesn't want you to know this, but we are going to tell you what really happened. Or the cook will never say this, but we are going to tell you this thing. Or they will try to warn Hirut, don't do this, don't, don't do this, and then she'll do it and she gets in trouble. Um, this chorus was for me uh, an important way to recognize what has existed in Ethiopia and across cultures for millennia, which are um, what we call uh, in, in Ethiopia, part of Ethiopia, it's Asmari. These are like the troubadours maybe, or people who go around and uh, maybe uh, sometimes they might be seen in different cultures as a town crier. They are people who put um, news, gossip, uh, different events in an area, in a village, into music. Uh, during the war, they would talk or sing about battles and make people remembered through song. Um, Homer, uh, Aeschylus, Euripides, I mean, there is the chorus in, in, in the works. Uh, but the Greeks did not invent them. This is something that has been happening across cultures. And I wanted to pay an homage to, to those people who are often unnamed, are unknown except in their small area, and yet they keep a kind of collective, uh, smaller history alive. Uh, so the chorus for me was part of that myth building. Uh, they would sing different things, and, the, and these, these griots or choruses that we see throughout uh, tragic Greek tragedies or in different things, um, they create myth from what actually happened. And to me, though, that's very close to history. Mm. We have around the world, it's not just in the United States, it's not just in Ethiopia, we have statues we have these monuments to different war heroes. But what are those but myths? Um, we imagine that these statues actually say something that's the truth. And yet, as we've seen, as these statues have started to fall down, we see that those were myths, that how, how you know, history is about myth-making. History is only what you choose to believe. Um, and that there's another truth beneath that, and it's that collective truth or individual truth that can often, that's often ignored. Um, but now we're starting to hear more of those realities. Mm. That's interesting because then, in a sense, in order to gain power, to keep power, you have to rule over history, but you also have to rule over myth. And history, I suppose, the way we look at it, or it's commonly looked at, is as if it's objective. Mm -hmm. This is what happened in this sequence. Myth is history infused with yes. poetry. Yes. So, in a sense, the only thing left for the writer to sort of combat these things with is the story. Yeah. The, the voices of those people 
who were never made myths of, the stories of those people who are often ignored by history because they're not important enough to be remembered, people like the cook, people like Hirut, who were meant to just serve whatever purpose in a community or in a family, and then disappear from history. Um, those, those people existed, they have always existed through different wars, different conflicts, different, different national movements. Um, they are the people that will not get the songs written about them. They won't get that small line in a textbook. Um, I often think about those people, for example, through World War II around the world, that lived in villages and might have just said to people, you can have whatever I have and I'll share with you. Um, we don't make statues for them. Mm -hmm. We don't make statues for those women who fought anti-fascists through the 30s and 40s, um, the grandmothers who were willing to, to drop everything and, and, and go fight. Um, we don't have that. And uh, those, for me, those are the people that, that carry the history. Um, and our statues don't reflect that. Mm. Because also, I suppose, as myths, they would not be functional. Um, myth building, I suppose, serves a particular purpose. If you start uplifting people like the cook, like Hirut, then suddenly what you're laying bare is history as class conflict, right? Right. right. Uh, these are women who are uh, either enslaved, forced into servitude, uh, silenced, uh, abused, exploited, and lifting them up that way, what would that say mm -hmm. about the nation that's being right. constructed? Right. What would it say about control yeah. over a group of people? The minute that you are able to speak of the Hiruts in a community or the cooks, uh, in, a, in a community, you're beginning to shift the ground. Mm -hmm. You're beginning to uh, create an imbalance. Uh, and there are m many more Hiruts and cooks than there are Kidanes mm -hmm. and Colonel Fuccellis. Uh, and that's, I think, a fear that power has, that people will really begin to recognize how much they can do. Uh, speaking of this, I've, I would like to talk a little bit about how you were working with sources while doing this book. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, you have the Italian sources. Um, and I imagine that, I mean, sort of writing African history as well is often writing against what was written about you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so I'm really curious about how you approached those. But also the Ethiopian sources, where they sort of um, uh, primarily interviews and stories, or were they what was written down? And if it was what was written down, mm -hmm. then um, how did you distinguish that form of myth-making from sort of um, the things that you wanted to bring out? Mm. Uh, on the Ethiopian side, there were a lot, I mean, a lot of stories that I would get, people would talk to me about relatives, uh, their, their family histories. Uh, there were testimonials that, that had been written down, uh, both of men and women who had been part of the war. Um, what I was finding in that was um, 
the those those things were, were they were important for me and helpful for me in understanding the way the way people traveled the way people moved um, people would talk about certain battles but again most of these um, stories talked about the heroics or the defiance um, on the Italian side, the documents that I would find in the archives often spoke of Italian bravery. Even if the war was lost, there were constantly um, conversations or documentation about uh, battles that were won, even when I know sometimes that those battles were lost. Um, the documents themselves might say that they won, or that it was not a retreat, but it was um, a shift in 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 course, uh, you know, a, a change in the marching directions. And and so I would have to hold both of these um, two kinds of documents together to try to figure out what actually happened. Um, but I think uh, I had a. A moment I, when I was living in Rome, when I was going through these archives, um, and I said, "I don't, I don't think this is helping me that much." I know so much of this has been reshaped and censored by the fascists, and I don't know what to do. Uh, and at some point, um, soon after I was thinking about this, I. Um, traveled to the southern part of Italy, uh, to Calabria, and I was there to speak about my first book set in 1970s during um, a revolution in Ethiopia. And I wondered while I was on my way there uh, whether I would come across anything about this history that I was researching, 1935. Uh, because um, the Italian military, the way that it, had, it was structured, was that uh, most of the officers, the educated people who held uh, uh, positions in the military came from the north. But the poorer, more agricultural parts of Italy in the south uh, were the communities that sent the foot soldiers. So... I wondered when I was there, heading towards the south, where, whether I would come across this history. And I was in a bookstore, and I had just finished talking about um, my first book. And there was a man who stood up at the very end and said, um, I would like to talk about 1935. And the entire room went quiet. Uh, and there were... I could feel the tension. And there were a few people that said, um, sit down, this is not the time. And he insisted on speaking. Um, and he was already getting emotional. And he took the mic and uh, he was shaking and he said, uh, my father was a pilot in the war. He dropped the poison gas on your people. And he started crying at that point. And he said, how do I ask for your forgiveness? Um, I didn't know what to say. I was getting emotional. Um, and I said to him something 
to the effect of uh, a conversation is the way that we begin to repair the past. And he said, please don't leave, I'll be right back. Um, he left and came back not long after with a self-published book that he had made of his father's diary entries, letters, and photographs, and he gave it to me. And he said, this is for you. Do what you want. Um, I took that back to my apartment in Rome and started looking through it, and what unfolded for me there in that book was a completely different history than anything that I had encountered before. This, um, this young, the man, a young man at that time, his account of just daily life, of walking through different parts of Ethiopia, of his encounters with Ethiopians, of flying those planes, the photographs of the bombs, the way that this war created such bonds with his friends between these Italians. So much of everything was there, both the friendships and the camaraderie, but also the racism and the cruelties were all there. Um, it came through in those, uh, those diaries and in the photographs. Um, and I, I started really thinking about images and thinking about the way that Mussolini had sent so many photojournalists into Ethiopia throughout East Africa to photograph the natives to justify an invasion, to create a narrative of people, um, of Africans as, as so uncivilized and so primitive that they needed the Italians. Um, these young men, like this man's father, took their cameras to war. This was for them a big African adventure. And so I decided that I would start looking at photographs as a primary source um, for writing this book and uh, looking at not the photographs that photojournalists took, which were often quite prescriptive, quite decided already what they were going to do. And they would often go through censors and then get printed in the Italian newspapers. But I decided that I would look for primarily the photographs taken by soldiers with their own personal cameras because they did not need to go through censorship. They could take those rolls of film, develop them in Asmara or Addis Ababa or Gondar or Aksum or wherever and keep them or wait until they got back to Italy and then develop them there. Um, I started going to flea markets across Italy um, and what I quickly realized was that there is always a fascist table. There is always a fascist table. And so I would often just enter the field where, or the, the plaza, piazza, wherever the, the, the market is, and then look for the head of Mussolini. And then I would find him and that's where I would go. Um, and I would ask the vendors, 
what do you have that's from the colonial period? And this is where the trouble started. <laughs> and they would, two different reactions. Either they would say, okay, let me help you and just take out every box, even from the back, and bring it and start looking with me. Um, and then the other reaction was, who are you? What do you want with this? This is not your history. Get out of here. Um, and so there were times when, if I'm holding something, they would grab it out of my hand. Or a few times they would just push me away. Um, and I always brought an Italian friend, though. That always helped. And I would just walk away if, if uh, something happened, if there was going to be trouble, and then tell my friend to go get this, 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 this. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was the, the research was primarily through those photographs. That's interesting to me. Um, history in these boxes, physically manifested, Oh, and yeah. then you physically being pushed away oh, from yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, one man was really angry <laughs> with me. Um, but I asked, there was a vendor that I got to know really well. And I, he had my, the, my mobile, my cell number. And anytime he got something, he would call me. And I would go. And um, at some point I said, where... What's happening? How are you getting these things, these albums, these photographs, these things? And he said, these soldiers keep those, those photographs. And when they die, the family doesn't want them anymore. They don't want to remember this. They don't want to talk about Ethiopia or Eritrea or Somalia. They don't want that memory. And so the, the first thing they do is get rid of it. Um, and that's where, and you know, then they would it would come to me. That's interesting to me that they would not want to remember it. No, I have a friend of mine, an Italian, and I have known her for years. And it was probably after knowing her six years, and we had been talking about photographs. And um, she is a historian in Italy. Uh, after. After five or six years, she said to me, I never knew my, my uncle was in the war. My mother just told me, we have photographs. Do you, do you want to see them? Uh, and I asked her, what happens? Why, we've been talking about this history for so long. And she said, um, her mother said that when her brother came back from war, that the war or the word Ethiopia was a wall in the family. Mm. Nobody talked about it. And I've found that again and again. Um, but there is a younger generation of Italians who are really pushing to make this history known, writers and artists. Um, and, I, and that for me is, uh, is, is really helpful. They, they were for me, um, uh, examples to follow. They opened a path that I could walk on with this book. But that reaction as well just proves kind of, I mean, it proves your point that history is still contested. Uh, the past isn't over. The past is still now, which means it's still vulnerable. Yes. Uh, and it's still malleable. Absolutely. Well, I think, I mean, we can see what's happening in Italy right now uh, with these calls to 
to praise Mussolini, to bring back this thing, uh, and uh, without, if there, there has been no real discussion about this war with Ethiopia in 35. Um, and I really there, I think that there is a straight line from that to the way that uh, refugees and migrants are treated to this current new government that's, uh, that's come in. Mm. I'm thinking back on the title here, mm. The Shadow King. Yeah. Um, of course, it's referencing Haile Selassie and his double, Minim. But it's also referencing, I think, the relationships between very many characters. Uh, and one of them that I was thinking about just spontaneously was between Mussolini and Fucelli. Ah, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she is so good. I have to tell you that I have really appreciated having these conversations. <laughs> I feel so lucky. Um, please tell me more. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, dear. <laughs> But we have sort of Haile Selassie's perspective, we have his function, and his function can kind of be uh, taken over by, by anyone who looks sufficiently like him. Mm -hmm. And Ficelli in this book is trying to embody the, the purest form of fascist, mm -hmm. right? The paternalistic, the powerful. He is there to inspire his men, much like the Shadow King is there to inspire Kidanis, yeah. men and women. Yeah. Um, and that parallel to me felt so um, important because in some way, w we're still talking about the nature of authoritarian regimes. Uh, on the one hand, an empire. On the other hand, an empire to be, mm. right? Um, trying to regain yes. sort of the Roman Empire. Right. And it, it complicated things for me as well because it put characters in relation because of their hierarchy, because of where they were placed. And that I thought was really interesting. But, but apparently there were also other things, <laughs> other shadow kings that you were thinking about. Yeah, there, there were. I mean, this is fantastic. Uh, and I thought about... Um, for me, there's there, because photography is such an important part of the book, Ettore, who is an Italian soldier, but he's also Jewish, takes his camera to war. And he is forced to um, photograph whatever Fucelli tells him to, which is often acts of cruelty, atrocities. Um, and I thought about the role of photography in war and thought also about the way that photography is a balance between dark and light, between shadow and brightness. Um, and at some point, I think Ettore even understands that he is a man standing in the shadows. He is he's this photographer. There's a line that his father um, says to him, um, his father is Jewish or was is is Jewish and um, fled the pogroms in in Odessa and walked to get as far away as possible from those memories, which was Italy. 
and now to see his son going off to war uh, for a fascist army is, is something that's breaking this man. Um, but he asks his son, um, you know, he says something about the, the body is constantly fighting between shadow and light. You know, where are you standing? Who are you? Where are you? Uh, and that was a part of a, that was an echo that I wanted in, in the title. And of course, I think Hirut begins to understand at some point that um, this world has become quite dark for her. And yet she's, she can rise up like a king in this shadow. Um, and also when Emperor Haile Selassie left and these women come in, uh, they weren't replacing a queen, they were replacing the king. And so um, I wanted to play with all of that. Um, I thought at one point uh, when I was getting ready to turn this book in, uh, I asked my editor, should I change the title? Because it's about women. Should it, should it be the shadow queen? She's like, no, you can't do that. Um, because I think it worked for all these different reasons. So the, the title stayed. And I also think it's interesting, I have to say this, that there is now a movie called The Woman King. Yes. <laughs> Which I just saw. So, hey, we can all do it. They should give you royalties for that. You know. <laughs> but it, I, I'm really glad that you kept the title because I also think it unlocks so much mm. of the text because it's, it's so deeply concerned with the nature of power. What is it? Yeah. Um, who is sort of the king? The light falls in one direction, but everyone else, everyone around you, yes. they're the ones who create you, Yes. you know? And in that sense, I, I keep coming back to the sort of hollowness at the core of power, at the heart of power, and how that has to be hidden. Yeah. It has to be protected. Um, but it's also the thing that undoes people from mm. within in mm. this book. Um, the realization that maybe they are minim, maybe they are nothing. Yeah. Uh, it's a very good title. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to say something briefly about sort of myth-making and myth-building, mm. because... There is a part. There are parts of this novel, and I now I realize more, sort of why, that alludes very heavily to Greek myth, yes. right? Yes. Icarus, Simonides. Yeah. Um, and there's wait, there's one part that I think. Can I read a little? Sure. Bit? Go ahead. <laughs> mm. Ibrahim, courageous son of Ahmed, wondrous voiced swift-footed tamer of horses, watch him sprint through this burnt land free of fear, propelled by those who run beside him, who look at their leader's proud face and bend into the wind to gain momentum. I mean, that's the Iliad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. Wondrous-voiced, swift-footed tamer of horses. And I recently reread Actually, when I read this, I, mm. I reread a book of poetry um, by a British poet, Alice Oswald. Oh, she's wonderful. She's wonderful. Memoriam? Uh, yes, exactly. Please Which, read that book. Please it's read it. <laughs> um, because it does something very similar. It takes out all the deaths in the Iliad. Mm. And that's it. Yes. 
And it really sort of brings home the same point. What is it that we remember? Mm-hmm. The name and what attaches to the name. Yes. Um, and when you were working with, with this, was that something that you were trying to... Um, well, I guess it's really the same question of register. Yeah. It's, yes. Uh, I remember the first time I read the Iliad in in high school. Um, and I remember how electrified I was by Homer's language and the momentum, and particularly those scenes where we have swift-footed Hector, or swift-footed Achilles and Hector, breaker of horses, um, and these battle scenes. And I was completely, completely mesmerized by it. Um, And there were moments in, in there when there was a mention of Ethiopia, Ethiopian, Ethiop, and I thought, aha, <laughs> you know, here. And it was one of the first times growing up in the United States where I felt like there was a text that recognized me, understanding, you know, I knew Ethiop, Ethiopia is, is black person, and yet here we were. Um, it was this. It was a magical moment, an encounter. Uh, with something ancient that that put me in in some kind of myth, some kind of history. Uh, I've gone back to read the Iliad again and again um, in different translations, and I wanted to emulate that. I wanted to make of these men that were fighting and the women who were fighting, wanted to make them like these mythic Greeks um, as a form of respect for the heroism that happens in these battles. Uh, And so with Ibrahim uh, leading his men, um, I said, I I have to do it. And it was fun. It was really fun to try to channel Homer um, and try to do something small that way. Yeah. I also think, for me at least, uh, the Greek myths, it became so interesting to me because the history of Western civilization rests on sort of the myth of ancient Greece. Yes. Um, but uh, but that is quite a recent invention, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, f- for a very long time, Greece was seen as not European at all, but geared towards the East. Um, and that's why we pop up in, in yes, Homer. Yes. And, and so for me, this also became a question of sort of what are the fundamental myths and histories that Western civilization has? Yes. Because Mussolini, of course, keeps mm. referencing to the, the Roman Empire. Yeah. Sort of the Roman Empire keeps referencing the Greek Empire. That's where they found their legitimacy. And so you travel back... And what do you find? You don't find an origin story at all. You yeah. find something completely different. Yeah. I mean, we were there. That's the thing, that mm. um, Africans were there. And that was the thing that I wanted to acknowledge, mm. that when Homer is writing about Penthesilea um, fighting against Achilles, this woman who is black, who is Ethiop, um, and she fights so bravely that Achilles weeps as he's killing her. Um, Homer is taking from something. 
He is inspired by something that already exists. He's not making up women from Africa. They are there for him to draw on, to create a story. Uh, and I wanted to, to work with that. But I also wanted to work with myth and work with these Greek myths. Um, I think we, we imagine that the Greeks or the Roman Empire is one of the oldest empires, and yet all across Africa were empires when Romans were still villagers, um, which is something that Fifi says. It's also a conversation <laughs> in the book. Yeah. Um, she reminds Fucelli, you know, we had an empire when you were nothing but farmers. Uh, and I, we forget that. And um, I wanted to take this on and claim it mm. um, because the the history of of East Africa, of Ethiopia, of Africa is, is ancient and uh, as worthy of respect, I think, as the Greeks and Romans. Thank you so much, Maaza, for this conversation. Thank you. We'll wrap it up here, but thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Thank you.